people never sit, stop and reflect, okay, what do I want to do in my life? At least knowing where you stand now, where you want to get to, and maybe that's in your relationship, in your connections with your friend, that's in your career, that's in your health, that can be anything. At least you have a path and you know where you're going. You need to start somewhere and you need to put yourself out there. We'll never be perfect. You'll suck and that's fine, but if you don't try, you'll never learn from it. I felt super overwhelmed, didn't know what to do, didn't know what you know solution was the right solution for me. And so that's where I decided to work with health specialists to understand you know, how we could just simplify the whole thing and create a solution for people that was just simple. As a founder, you need to always reassure everyone around you. You have employees, you have stakeholders, you have suppliers, you have investors, and everyone will look at you and be like, how is she feeling? It's really hard because you need to keep always everyone's energy up. Sometimes you don't know, but you know that you have a direction, a vision, and that you're just going to continue to grind and try to get there as much as possible. All right, guys, so in today's episode, I sat down with Lara, who's the founder of Vitable. A lot of you would already know who they are. They're obviously the personalized daily vitamin packs. But what's so interesting about this conversation is she was actually someone deeply ingrained in the corporate world and the corporate culture. This is about her journey of stepping outside, that realizing she wanted more, and then how she built this business idea, built her skills, and actually raised funding to create a first in-market product and business plan. So I, I learned a lot. It was a really good chat with Lara. Um, we'll get into it in a second, but before we do, can I just ask for one favor? If you're listening to this podcast on an audio platform, if you could please, please just give us uh, a review, five-star review if you're enjoying the podcast. Um, and if you're listening on YouTube, just hit the subscribe button to the channel um, and drop a like on the video. Both those things really help the channel grow. As the channel grows, obviously we get bigger guests, more value, and uh, it's just more fun for everyone. So yeah, let's get into it. All right, we're back again. Another exciting episode now for the people that spend a lot of time on uh, anything on the internet, on Facebook, on Instagram. If you're like me, you would have seen Vitable pop up many, many times over the last couple of years now. Vitable, for those who don't know, is, is, is a company which I think it's a really cool idea what you've created. It's personalized daily vitamin packs that are prescribed to someone or recommend to someone based on your AI quiz that they take, based on everything they want to improve, their lifestyle habits, diet, all their goals and that sort of stuff. And then it gives you a recommendation of this series of, of vitamins. So it kind of takes all the guesswork out of it for those who don't want to spend hours researching all the vitamins and, and, and what they need. So I think it's an awesome idea. We're, get, we're chatting to the founder, co-founder and CEO, Lara Lautati. I don't know if I said that right, but um, I always fuck up people's last names. I think it was all right. Um, we're going to chat about that whole journey. Um, you're someone who was born in Morocco, then moved to France to study. I know you've got, you're, you're half French. So I want to talk, start there kind of back in Morocco, then moving to France before we get into this whole journey of building the business and moving over to Australia and all that fun stuff. But yeah, first of all, welcome to the podcast and then give us a little bit, everyone who's listening, a little bit of a catch up on Lara's origin story, where you came from and how you finally ended up moving over to Australia. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Super no excited to be here. Um, so story, I so grew up in Morocco, as you said, half French, um, half French, half Moroccan, French accent, yes. <laughs> and um, well, grew up, I, I guess you know, nor I mean, normal, normal life. You know, went to I actually went to French a uh, French school. Uh, grew up there. Cool. That was really nice because Morocco is super sunny. Yeah, where we were, I grew up surfing as well. Uh, had a lot of time with my family, parents, which I thought was really cool. And uh, it's probably part of the reason why I ended up, you know, in Australia. It makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah. Exactly. And I, at the end of, uh, you know, my, my high school, I went to France to study because that's kind of what you do when you go to French school. And then, and I studied, um, you know, pretty boring, studied business and communication and 
um, ended up starting my career in consulting, mm -hmm. actually. So management consulting. So what what does that involve as well? Like I've, I've done a very short stint of probably about 18 months in the corporate world. Um, before I realized I'm just not, I'm just not out cut out for the corporate, for the corporate, um, way of life, but consultants, I hear this word, this phrase, this job title thrown around a lot for those of the people listening that, that don't really know what consultants are and what your background, what were you doing on a day to day basis as a consultant? It's a really good question. Actually, I don't think uh, you're right. It's a, it's a word that is thrown around a lot, but, um, perhaps, you know, some people don't know what it's about. So what, what is it? It's uh, essentially you, you, you're part of a firm. Uh, in my case, it was uh, one of what they call the big four. Um, so uh, you're, you're in a firm and you get, um, you have a like a customer, which would be a bank or a larger corporate or any type of, uh, of business who will come to you and you to, for advice on any, you know, on a specific topic. So for me, it was post, um, financial crisis and most of the job that I did was to it was consulting on the regulatory changes around banking and and assets and so on so it's uh, it's really interesting because consulting I think is interesting because you you start very young you start early and you go through a lot of different projects and clients quite quickly and so that that's you learn a lot essentially in a really short amount of time you also work really really hard <laughs> And, uh, but it's kind of an accelerated, uh, like learning curve essentially. And that's the part that I liked. So going through that, doing, doing the consulting, did you like, how early on did you figure out like the health and wellness space was kind of something that would appeal to you? Was it that early or was it a little bit further along your journey? Actually, it was not at that time. I think when I grew up in Morocco, we were eating quite well, you know, kind of the Mediterranean diet and a lot of fresh produce and so on. So I never really had, and I think I was lucky to worry about, you know, my health or what I was feeling for me. It was just, you know, you feel good, normal, and that was it. And then I went to France and, you know, you're a student and you just start eating really badly. <laughs> and it doesn't, you don't really feel the effects early, but I think when you start working and that compounds, you start um, feeling a bit, you know, tired and not, not uh, really like yourself. And that's where I start, when I started feeling that I probably needed some sort of support. But at the time I really had no idea what what I could be doing. And so it's only when I actually came to Australia. So when I left my consulting job, I came here to travel, travel a little bit. And then I started a job in a startup and I, I worked really, really hard. I was quite stressed. I was probably putting too much pressure on myself, to be honest. And I started feeling tired in the afternoon, you know, waking up feeling um, terrible, uh, had digestive discomfort, brain fog, all the things that I think if you talk to people around you, everyone has experienced that. And I started Googling those symptoms. And that's where, you know, it all started because I felt super overwhelmed, didn't know what to do, didn't know what, you know, solution was the right solution for me because there was just one side fits all solutions out there and, and just a lot of them. And so I just, that's where I decided that to do more research and to work with health specialists to understand, you know, how we could just simplify the whole thing and, and create a solution for people that was just simple. Now, I want to rewind a little bit to just something you said. So you were, you were working your consulting job over in France. What inspired the move to Australia? Were you just stressed out, overworked, wanted to take a little bit of a gap year and see what happens? Or what, what was the motivation to that move? It's basically, <laughs> basically, you, yeah, you nailed it. It's exactly what, what happened. I was just, it was just a lot of hard work. I didn't feel, 
I don't want to say fulfilled because that's, you know, um, so it's not necessarily the right concept, let's say, but I, I just felt I was looking essentially at people above me, so, you know, managers and partners in that firm. And um, without any judgment, I was just saying it's not me. Like, it's not the person I want to become. It's not necessarily what I see for myself in the next few years. And I just didn't know what to do. Like, what, what should I do? What job? Can I just shift my career? I, I, I was a bit at loss. And so I decided to take some time off. And what a better country than Australia to do that. Now, so. I, I know, um, yeah, gr great country. Again, Australia is <laughs> awesome. Like, it's clean. Like, it's safe. Like, there's a lot of, like, opportunity out there. But, again, we, had, we, the, we just dropped a podcast today. And it's like, for anyone that's really creative and ambitious, is Australia the best country? There's, there's pros and cons. Again, everyone wants what they don't have. Now, I, I understand exactly. how Australia is an awesome country, but I want to, I want to know, cause I know like you, you're quite like your parents were like a bit of an influence to you to go into university and study and, you know, make the most of your, of your career that way. What was their thoughts around you, you know, leaving your, your awesome job and, and moving across the other side of the world? There's actually a really funny one. So yeah, I think my parents, maybe like a lot of parents had in mind that, you know, I should be doing the, the right, you know, path and working in finance or, or consulting was probably safe. Mm -hmm. uh, all, all those, you know, <laughs> keywords that, uh, that are not necessarily, you know, the right thing for, for mental health and so on. But uh, basically, I, I needed to choose something safe, something that will uh, give me a good future. And uh, I kind of followed that path. Kind of, kind of naturally because I wanted to please them, I think, somehow. And um, it's only when I had that wake-up call, so feeling overworked and a little bit uh, feeling uh, kind of a burnout, I would say, uh, that I realized, okay, well, maybe that was not my path. Maybe that was only their path. And um, when they when they heard that I wanted to leave the, the cons my consulting career and then come to Australia, initially their response was really positive. It was like, well, that's good. If you need a break, you know, that's perfectly fine. We support you. And I remember really well, I was I was uh, just having um, taking a break in France just before coming to Australia and my parents were with me in France. And my dad took me for a walk and he was like, well, it's great. You know, you, you can do this and you can you can relax and take some time off. So for how long? A month? And I was like, no, no, 12 months. Wow, and yeah. he, I, I felt at that moment he was going to, you know, kind of accept it, but then start pressuring me to go back to a, to a, um, to a more secure job. But, you know, I don't blame them. It's just how they were taught and how they grew up. So did you, when you moved over to Australia, did you have friends, family, anyone over here or what made you, yeah, because it can be a big scary leap and a lot, a lot of people, I want to bring this up because obviously the podcast isn't just about business, but it's about life choices, life changing decisions and, and following, you know, what to your core feels right. And a lot of people will have a dream to, you know, go and move over the other side of the world, whether it be start a business or get a job. And they just won't do it because they're scared of all the unknowns. What was that, you know, mental thought process like for you? Did you have a, you know, a friendship base or anyone here that you could lean on for support or did you just kind of dive into the deep end? The latter. So I, I just decided to come here. And as you said, you know, Australia is, is, is a safe country. So I wasn't too worried about coming here on my own. But and, and, you know, sometimes you make decisions and you don't really think too much about it. But then when the date, uh, the flight <laughs> date approached and crept in, Crap, what I, have I done? exactly, I started being quite stressed. And, you know, how I think the thing that stressed me out the most is the most is, OK, I land there and I had an accommodation. So that was all sorted. But and so what? And I'm someone who can get, um, and I've 
kind of evolved since then. But at the time, um, I could get a lot of social anxiety. So for me, it was not necessarily supernatural to just go out there, talk to someone on the street, you know. And that was way before I realized that in Australia, it's super chill to do that, you <laughs> yeah. know, which in France, people would think you're absolutely mental. That's something that's so true when I, we were just over in Europe <laughs> and, I, and I, we, didn't, we, didn't go to, we didn't go to France, but I, I definitely noticed this in, in the Netherlands, in like in the, city, in the city. Like in Australia, you walk into like any retail store, like everyone will look at you and smile or say hello. Like people don't do that in Europe. Like it's just, if you stare at people and smile, they're like, what do you look like? It's weird. But it's just one of those cultural things. Nothing's right or wrong, but it would have been a big cultural shock, especially for someone a little bit more introverted than, you know, just going out and making friends on the spot. Yeah, and it was great, to be honest, because I think the, you know, that mateship that you guys have in Australia and the, just everyone in a good mood and people just, you know, you're sitting next to someone at a cafe and you start a discussion and there's nothing weird about it. It's great. It can only be positive. Like, I, I, I would be surprised if someone would be like, oh, that's so annoying. People are talking to me, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I felt, and, and Morocco is, is a little bit like that. And so when I moved from Morocco to France, I was actually a little bit shocked by the, I think they say it's it's a little bit individualistic in France, in France so is that even a word? In I think I know what you mean. Um, so, yeah. People are, you know, care about themselves. Yeah. I don't yeah. know if it's a accurate, fully accurate representation, but um, people won't necessarily yet talk to you on the street or even if you stop, stop someone to ask for a direction, People will be really worried first about what you're going to ask or what. It's a very, it's very sad. Um, yeah. The first thing you 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 think about is, well, what do you, what do they want from me? But here, you people approach you with a big smile, like, yeah, great, a conversation. Yeah, I found that yeah a big a big cultural difference in a, in a few different places I go, and it's really like it can make you f like, as someone that's so used to it, when someone like is so clearly you know put off by you approaching them, you're like, fuck, like, what do I do? What did I do wrong? But no, it's just cultural <laughs> differences, right? Yeah. Now you mentioned when you, when you, I don't know if there's any, any, uh, steps that I'm skipping here. You mentioned you moved to Australia and you got a job with a really exciting startup. Um, HelloFresh obviously is, is, is massive in Australia. Is it an Australian founded company or is it just done really well here? No, it's a, it's actually German. It's German. It started in Germany. It's listed on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange and it's in now, more than 15 countries, I would say wow. one five. And uh, so, yeah, they've done really, really well. I think they're, I mean, a lot of people now classify them as one of the most successful direct-to-consumer mm -hmm. model uh, globally. Yeah, well, I've, I've been a, you know, back before my um, my partner lived with me, I, when I was uh, living the bachelor life, I was HelloFresh because I didn't have time to, you know, show up and research recipes. I've been a big I've been a big fan of that model. Now, was there was that your first proper job that you got when you were in Australia? Because obviously you were there from pretty early days through to when they did the IPO and and, and went public. Was there anything in between that, or did you get straight into to, to that that role? Well, I yeah, I did actually worked on farms in. Oh, in you Australia. had to do all that. Like, yeah. yeah. So I came on a working holiday visa, and if you want to extend that visa, which is for twelve months, you need to do some farm work for three months. I think it's still the case. And I just thought it would be cool. So I did it. And so I ended up in far north Queensland, in near the Dentry Forest, That's in Croc cool. territory, um, picking fruits. That was that was really interesting. What's that like? Because, you know, I hear all the people, like, come <laughs> over from Europe and, and, they, and they do this. And, like, most Australians have never done this. So it's like you've had more of an Australian experience. What's it like living on these, like, remote farms and, and, and doing this work? Like, is it is it weird? Does it feel like you're living in a movie or on another planet? 
100% like you live in a movie, and especially because... So I arrived there. I didn't know, really know what to, what to expect. Uh, the, the family that I was staying with, so the, the farmers, they, um, they lived in the middle of the, of the Daintree Forest. And they, they liked... For them, it was, um, you know, let's be one with nature. So the house had all the windows, doors open all the time. So pests, like you call it, would be in and out all the time. And there you have every type of uh, possible insect or animal <laughs> or snake or bat. So they had the in-house living bat, which were like was living in one of the of the rooms. You had tree frogs on the walls. You had, right. well, I didn't see a snake in the house, but apparently they would come in and, and come out. But for me, the, the shocking one, and when I was like, am I in a movie? Is when I decided to go swim in a creek. And they were like, yeah, there's this creek, but please don't go to that other one because there are crocs. And I, I laughed out loud. And they said, no, no, actually. And for me, it was crazy to think, no, actually, you can go to a creek just next to the house and be attacked by a croc. <laughs> yeah. So odd. All right, guys, just quickly, I've got some news. I've spent close to the past 18 months building the ultimate program that takes you through the complete process, and I mean the complete process of launching and scaling your very own e-commerce brand from zero all the way up to a million dollars plus per year. And now with this program, what you're going to get access to is 15 modules with over 100 training videos and 23 hours of in-depth content, taking you through everything you need to know to build a successful e-com brand. And this is the important part. This isn't just stuff that you can look up on YouTube. This is stuff I've taken from real lessons and experiences building Happy Skin Co. from zero all the way up to an eight-figure per year brand. You're going to get access to loads of custom tools, templates, and calculators that I've used to build and run Happy Skin Co. There's going to be one-on-one -on -one mentoring with myself and other expert coaches, and there's also weekly group Q&A calls with myself to make sure you're feeling completely supported throughout the entire process. And now what I've learned from consulting to everyone from people starting their very first e-commerce brand all the way up to brands already doing seven figures plus per year is that there's a process and a framework to follow if you want to be successful with e-com. Now, if this is something you're interested in, hit the link below and go to join.viralbrandbuilder.com. All the information's there and you can book a call directly with me. Otherwise, send me a DM and we can chat there. Anyway, let's get back to the pod. Crazy, yeah. And it, like, even like I've lived in city my whole life, so I've never... I lived in the bush or real or anything. And so we're kind of conditioned to all those animals, you know, the snakes and spiders. But, like, that's not, like, the norm in Europe. Like, you don't have all the dangerous, venomous animals that, that we do. So, it's yeah, it's another big um, shock that people experience when they come here. But you're at, you're at as I said, um, HelloFresh for a while now. <laughs> you must have learned a lot from there. Obviously, they've, they've become one of the most successful, you know, direct-to-consumer brands in, in, in the world. Now, obviously – you, you've, again, taken some inspiration or some of your learnings that you've got from there. You've moved into health and wellness as well and you've done personalization in your complete own individual way. But it, it seems really obviously like you would have taken an inspiration from the HelloFresh model and thought, hey, there's an opportunity to do that over here. But in your own words, what do you think you kind of got out of the HelloFresh experience and what were some of the lessons or the challenges that you overcome there that helped you with founding Vitable? Yeah, really good question. Uh, definitely, they were, you know, I learned a, lo a lot of things there that I was able then to, you know, leverage and, and utilize when I started Vitable, and I'm really grateful for that. Um, the I think what's the main thing that I learned at Federal Fresh, and, and remember, I, I came from consulting, so I, I had never worked in a startup before. I didn't know really the concept of direct-to-consumer. The only thing that um, I knew quite well was uh, adding structure, being a little bit analytical, and being a foodie 
is where we were the two for I think the two reasons why they, they hired me. And initially when I came in, uh, my role was called head of product. So it's not digital. It was everything that goes in the box, all the recipes, the menu planning, because there's a lot of data involved. And that was amazing for me. That was like my calling, I think, at the <laughs> time. Um, it was a great company to, to, to work for. I think very, very, to be honest, really hard work and a lot of very ambitious targets and, and pressure, let's, let's be honest, but that's how you, I think you make your business successful. And I just love the level of responsibility because I came in quite early in the business still. And my, the, I was reporting to the CEO and I think he just trusted me to, to, um, good, you know, help them deliver the, the vision in my team essentially. So that was really good. And I think the, yeah, direct to consumer and subscription are two things that uh, I then, you know, that I learned at HelloFresh and, and that I thought made a lot of sense for health and well-being as well. And that's where we started Vitable using this, this model, essentially. You mentioned pressure and that being part of the role and the expectation and just the reality of, of, of working in a, in a startup that's growing at such a fast rate. But like so many people want to avoid pressure, want to avoid stress and uncomfortable situations, but it's that pressure that makes us grow and evolve both on a personal individual level and as a business. So there's no way you can avoid that. Like if, if you want to, you know, live a drastically different life to what you're living now and you think you're going to do that just by doing what's easy and waking up every day and not experiencing any pain or discomfort or stepping outside of your comfort zone, you're completely wrong and, and nothing's going to change if you don't do that. So it's interesting to say that like that's been part of the process from when you were working in the startups and obviously the pressure and, and the stress and everything you have to manage when it's your business and it goes to another level, yeah. but it's always going to be part of the process. So people need to understand that you can't avoid that. Like you have to put yourself out there in situations that you, you don't feel comfortable, right? I agree with you completely. I think that, um, and perhaps, you know, there are a lot of these stories online, like on, you know, Instagram, TikTok, where, you know, do do the minimum and, you know, this is, I, I discovered a trick, which is, <laughs> yeah. you know, I only do one hour of work a day and now I'm a millionaire. And I think you hear a lot of these stories and perhaps they have happened to some people. Why not? Uh, like I, I don't discard that completely. Yeah, Tim Ferriss maybe. I mean, and I'm sure he's a hard worker, yeah. you know, and, and um, he's, you know, he's, he wrote a book and he did he did many things. So I think that it's a misconception. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think that you need to work hard if you want to achieve something, whatever that something is. Right. Because then not everyone wants to be a millionaire and not everyone wants to, you know, X or Y. But you need to get out of your comfort zone for sure that I completely agree. And, and I think the. It's, it's all a question of mindset. I think if you go into a startup, if, if that's what you want to do or any corporate job and you're like, well, I want to make more money or I want to, you know, I want to grow in, the, in my role and so on. But um, I don't want to do it at the expense of, you know, being, uh, being healthy or being, uh, you know, having good mental well-being and so on. I think that's great. That's a good start because you should never say, well, my health doesn't, ma doesn't matter, etc. But I think you need to shift it in a way that um, is more positive and, uh, and you can say, well, you know, it's a period of my life where I'll grow a lot and sometimes I will have some setbacks, but it's okay because it's all learning and, you know, I'll, then I'll, I'll be able, you know, perhaps at some point in 10 years to, to, um, to work a little bit less and I'll, I've, I will have earned it. I don't know. It, I, I feel that a lot of people say I want this and that and that, but oh no, uh, you know, I don't want to go out of my nine to five and there is no, no way I do a little bit extra. Mm. So. Yeah. And, and what you said, I, I, I really agree with in terms of like, there's not, look, there's, I don't, 
Look, I'm sure there's some people that have done it, but if you're if you're living if you're living one life and it's nowhere near where you really want to be and you want to make a change, like you're not going to get there without putting in the hard work. But the hard work is just part of the price of admission to to really change your life, unless you get extremely lucky. But again, that the odds of that happening are super low. Like there's going to have to be a period, whether it be two years or five years or or whatever, of really hard work. But then if you get into it knowing why you're doing the work and, and what your dream lifestyle and, and, and your, and your dream scenario is with work and business, then it doesn't need to be like that forever. If you need it, if you want to grow a business and you can get to the point where you can bring staff in and then your day-to-day responsibilities are less and that's the lifestyle you want, then that's awesome. But to get there, there's going to have to be a little bit of something to make the change now. But on the flip side, I'm sure in your work, you would have seen like, some of the partners at these big firms you work for that working, you know, 14 hours a day, unhappy, divorced, unhealthy. It's like, yeah, chasing the, the the money and the financial freedom is exciting at the beginning, but some people don't ever switch out of that mode and they end up living just to make money and they don't live a healthy life. They aren't fulfilled. They don't get to like, you know, spend time with their friends and family. So I think it's important to to have that, but then be able to have the ability once you've kind of move forward a little bit to adjust, reassess, hey, where do I want to go next? I'm really happy doing what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. I 100% agree with you. I think you've said, you know, you've said it all. And uh, I think a lot of people never sit, you know, stop and reflect, okay, what do I want to do in my life? I think, and I think that's what's causing the most stress to people. Every time I I talk to friends or family member and I see that they have, you know, high level of of, of stress or or anxiety, it's often because they don't know where they're going or they haven't decided what what they're going. And I think a lot of people, unfortunately, make fun of goals, you know, having goals. Oh, my God, I'm not one to have goals. What does that mean? That's crazy to me. Exactly. But you can have goals in any area of your life. You don't need to be someone who is a hyper achiever. No one is telling you that that's what you should be doing in your life. But at least knowing where you stand now, Mm. where you want to get to. And maybe that's in your relationship. That's in in your connections with your friend. That's in your career. That's in your health. That can be anything. At least you have a path. And you know what you're going. And I, I do believe that once you have this, and you won't know exactly how to get there, and you'll make mistakes, and you'll have setbacks, and then you'll grow again. But that's so relaxing to at least say, you know, be like, okay, I know where I want to go in one year, five years, and then I can just, you know, do my best to get there. Yeah, exactly. That's a good point. Like uh, some people might hear the word goals and, and think it has to be career related, or it has to be financially related. And then just, just the reality of like how diverse the world is like not everyone has this super ambitious bug that they feel like they need to go and do all these things. Some people are fine with that, but goals can be as simple as, okay, there's a lot of people right now that aren't happy with their life, how they're feeling, what they're doing day to day. Envision what your life would look like if you were happy. And then that's your goals. Break it down into career, personal, you know, skill set, your relationship with yourself, where, where you are now, where do you want to be? Then that's your goals. It doesn't have to be, I want to build a business and do seven, seven figures per year, then eight. Like, it's not always about that. It can be, like you said, just figuring out what you really want. And I feel like with society, I don't know what it's like in, in Morocco or France. Like, do you feel like in, on the other side of the world, do, is it still common that most people are driven down this like standard path of you go to school, then you go to university, you get into, and then you just live in this. Is that kind of what it's like over there as well? Yeah, I think it's very, very common. I, actually, what I found is that in Australia, people probably have a, put more, give more value to a good work-life balance, at least uh, their lifestyle, 
um, and and you know not working maybe too late and, and making too, too, not working too many hours. And actually it was a shock and it's a shock for a lot of my French friends <laughs> as well when they come to Australia, like, oh, people are so laid back. Uh, mm. They're so, you know, almost being like they're too laid back. Like, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. They actually work. But that's what makes Australia, I think, so great is be, people protect themselves. And maybe that's not how you feel because you, you're from here, right? So for you, maybe people already are in the... I don't like this wording, but like rat race, you know? Yeah, like no, no, I, I agree. Like in talking to like my international friends, I understand why that conception around Australians is. And like, obviously we're having this conversation. Everyone in this room are like the ambitious, hardworking people that will probably could drop us into any European capital city and, and we'd fit into the, you know, hustle and bustle of that. But then like, if you take a step outside of my little bubble, then yeah, day to day people, like most people, but I think it's fine if they're happy, if they're truly happy, then sweet, like live the life of the lifestyle. Like that's probably so many hear. people. I think yeah, that's well, what exactly. brought us here because, exactly. because of the lifestyle. So I'm not going to blame, no, blame people for that. Not at all. No. Now let's, let's, I want to talk about, okay, you get the idea. Well, you, you've, you started talking to the nutritionist there and it, trying to figure out why you're experiencing burnout, why your energy and clarity and focus isn't, is it what it used to be or, or what you know it could be? Where do you go from then to like, okay, I know I want to explore health and wellness. How long does it take between the time you, you figure out the niche you want to be in and you figuring out, hey, personalized vitamin packs, what's that process like? And then I want to get into, okay, from once you've got the idea, how you pitch it to investors and, and everything like that. Yeah. And, and that was a big, I think, um, you know, life decision change moment, uh, I think, for, for me because I had never thought I would – have to connect with investors or raise money or, or start my own business business. So that was, that was a, an interesting moment, but to answer your question, I, so I was again at HelloFresh. I started experiencing the symptoms. There was a naturopath, a nutritionist there, and they were the ones who started asking me questions about my lifestyle and diet and explaining in very simple terms how they could be impacting my nutrients level and and my ability just to feel you know to feel good. So just to give you an example, I was stressed so I was actually going to F45 every morning because I was like this is great this is a good way to get rid of my stress but if you're someone who is quite stressed you might have high cortisol levels and if you exercise a lot then you'll raise your cortisol level in, in even further and that creates you know fatigue like long story short that creates more fatigue so you won't rec recover as well from exercise and that puts more pressure on, on your body and, and your mind I guess so for me that was like like a big moment because I, I had no idea and then I, I didn't eat much um, seafood I didn't eat much fish at the time and my I was getting sick all the time so they were saying look it's it's probably because your immune system is a bit compromised and so you might need to supplement with zinc so they, they started giving me a couple of high quality supplements nothing too wild and I had never taken supplements before and I just I trusted them. I, I started taking the supplements, started to make small changes, like exercising perhaps a little bit less. And I just felt so much better. But in two weeks, three weeks, and for me, that was, I, had, I just had an epiphany. I, I thought I was healthy. I thought I knew what to do, but actually I had no idea. And these simple changes, I felt, changed my life at the time. And... For me, that was a no-brainer. I was like, okay, I want to, I want someone to get the same. I want people around me to get the same experience. Just simple information, simple solution. You don't need to do much. We'll do all the guesswork, you know, all the hard work for you, and you can just focus on enjoying your life, enjoying your friends, enjoying your social time. 
but not focusing on how bloated you are or how much of a headache you have, you know? You, I'm jumping a little bit ahead there, ahead here with this question, but I want to ask you now, you mentioned you, you, you never had supplements before, which for me, I've been having like vitamins and supplements since, you know, probably 15, 16 years old. Now, part of like why Australia was such a good market to launch Vitable was according to your research, like 70% you know, penetration of people had already tried or were using vitamins or supplements. Is that not the norm in, in France? Is it a bit less people use these sorts of products? Much less. So wow. it was not necessarily a thing for me growing up. I think the occasional magnesium mm -hmm. um, from my mom when, you know, my eye was switching or something like that, that was a thing. Couldn't sleep. That yeah, I couldn't sleep well. So maybe I had occasionally a magnesium, but uh, other than that, nothing. And I think it's, few things here. One is probably, I think French people, you know, love their fresh produce and um, the agric agricultural, sorry, it's hard work to pronounce, practices are, are um, quite protected in France to make sure that, you know, all nutrients, like the soil preserves the nutrients. And, and I think French people are really proud of eating well. So they probably reject the idea of vitamins just because they're like, no, you can get everything from food. And an ideal word Yes, please get everything you can from food. That's really Always, our yeah. approach, even at Vitable, or even if we sell, you know, vitamin <laughs> supplements. But the reality is that in countries like Australia, and there, there is a lot of research to back what I'm what I'm saying, um, is that the soil is quite depleted in in essential nutrients. Actually, hist like historically, it is just because it, it, it's not, you know, it's a country that um, where actually you couldn't have grown a tomato or, or you know, this kind of, of, of um, produce before. Um, and also because agricultural practices are a little bit different, there is more intensive agriculture. And if you don't take time to replenish the soil, then you will always be depleted in nutrients. If the soil is depleted, what you eat is depleted, even all the way to, you know, maybe the cow, I mean, that, that uh, also eats the grass, etc. So that means that, and especially one, one really important nutrient, which is, and it's, it's called a trace mineral, and it's selenium. You, maybe you've heard about selenium, yeah. eat your brazel, uh, brazel nuts, right? Uh, the, the Australian soil is, is heavily depleted in selenium. It's a really, really important um, trace mineral for your thyroid. Mm -hmm. It works with iodine to, to make it work, and, and the thyroid is responsible for many, many processes in, in your body. So uh, I think the, the reason is, is, is this, is the soil is depleted. So I think historically Australians have needed maybe supplements a little bit more than in other countries. That's a really good point. I was listening to a podcast recently and even though I'm, I'm someone who, you know, is quite health conscious and spends a lot of time looking into, you know, my diet and, and, and potential supplements and vitamins, minerals, that sort of stuff. But I was listening to a podcast and it was the first time I'd thought of it this way, which is, which is weird. I, I don't know if anyone else has never thought about it like this, but like essentially he was saying the same thing as, as, as what you were saying. So if, if you have like an apple or a broccoli or a tomato or whatever, like based on whatever, you know, studies they've done, there's X, Y, Z amount of vitamins and minerals in each one. And then they just assume that all of them is the same. But if you went to buy like a pre-workout for, again, this is very Australian thing, pre-workout off the shelf, you'd look at you'd like two different companies, two different brands. They have different amounts of each. With fresh produce, you, you, you're never trained to do that. So you just assume, oh, it's packed full of everything I need. But because of like the soil quality, and this is something that I've heard a lot over the last couple of years as well, that creates a big difference in the, in the final you know product and how, how, how nutrient dense it is. So even if you are eating a pretty good diet, well-balanced diet, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're getting all the vitamins and minerals that, that you're supposed to be. 
100%. And I think what you're referring to is that study that they've done where they measured, measured the vitamin C level in, in apples in the 50s and uh, now. And actually, it's, it has 50% less vitamin C than it, used to, than it used to contain. So what could have been a wholesome uh, diet which would maybe give you almost all the nutrients and minerals that you need at the time um, may not be possible today. And I know it's controversial for some reason, but um, you know, even if you go to the doctor today, they will recommend iron or vitamin D if you're deficient. So it's only normal that if you can't get everything from your diet, your body yeah. needs uh, some sort of supplementation provided you can't get it from food. And to me, again, and I think this is a cultural thing, obviously we, we've just discussed that Australians per capita use vitamins more frequently than, than a lot of countries in the world. It just makes sense to me that like, and, and maybe this is because I'm in business, but it's like you mentioned like being sick before and, and then you don't want to not prioritize health because you want to focus on work. But we both know when you get properly sick, there's nothing you can do to, to work. So it's like I've always taken like a, a big focus on supplementing everything that I could potentially need, probably even things I don't need because I really want to perform and, and, and feel my best every day. But most people don't have the time or the interest to, you know, really invest in looking at all these things and what does this affect and how is this broken down and converted? Like, so that's where you come in in terms of like the vital process, leveraging technology to, you know, make people make better health decisions without spending heaps of time. Now you get this concept, you realize, Hey, this is kind of like an industry first thing. It's, you know, this, this quiz, based on like backed by AI, you can't really just as your first business go out there and make up this AI quiz yourself. You're not, as you said, like a nutritionist or a scientist or a biologist, anything like that. You're obviously going to need investment to make this business model exactly how you've imagined it a reality. What's the steps between when you get the idea and like how long is it before you realize we're going to need investment? And then what's the steps to try and secure that investment? Yeah, so be, when we realized, you know, we wanted to create a, a model that was powered by technology and that, uh, um, le, like, and the diet-to-consumer model, subscription model, we we knew we were going to need capital at the time. And the reason behind that is because uh, vitamins and supplements in, in Australia are quite heavily regulated. And so there are only a certain there's only a certain type of, of manufacturer that you can go to in order to, to produce vitamins and supplements. And their minimum order quantities are quite high. Um, so when we did the math quite early, we were like, well, we'll probably need to, we can't really bootstrap this um, and we'll probably need to uh, get uh, some, some investment. And also, you know, we're not, you can't really MVP vitamins, <laughs> <laughs> vitamins and supplements so far. So although we MVP the sub supply chain and, you know, the, uh, pa the packaging and so on, you, you, you are giving ingestible to people and you want it to be uh, the best possible quality from day one. And that's really, I think, something that I learned from HelloFresh as well, they were putting a lot of um, emphasis on the customer experience and making sure that you build a product that is of high quality because you can't. You're a direct-to-consumer model. You you that's what you need to do in order to make sure that your product is sticky. So we knew we needed the investment, and to be honest, you know when you say some sometime like things happen for a reason or you feel that you need to do something and that will lead you somewhere. I feel that that's really what happened at the time because everything from consulting to coming to Australia to then starting at HelloFresh and doing my own business, um, I was 
working really hard there and I, I burned, um, burned, not at all, I built um, a lot of um, of connections in, and I was working closely as well with the, with the founders in that were in Germany. And when I, seek, I looked for investments, I actually uh, approached Rocket Internet, who are the, who is the VC firm, venture capital firm behind HelloFresh, <laughs> uh, who invested initially at, in HelloFresh, the iconic uh, delivery hero, Fudora at the time. And I so pitched them the, the business model. The, their analyst had already identified vitamin supplement and Australia as interesting models and 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 geographies. So that was really good. And you know the right synchronicity. Exactly. Yes. And they asked. So the, their team asked the founders or someone at HelloFresh. I don't. I still don't know who it is. But they asked someone at HelloFresh, um, should we back this person? Like, what do you think? And I got. They, you know, I was lucky not that uh, enough. Sorry that I got the thumbs up from from that person. So thank you. If you're, if <laughs> you're listening, that was. yeah. No, I don't know who it is. I, I have an ID, but I don't yeah. know exactly who it is. I was not uh, able to, you know, thank anyone. So yeah, um, thank you. And uh, obviously, we did the whole process of investment due diligence and so on. But that was definitely something that um, I believe helped in us securing the investment. So is it luck? I don't know, but I feel that everything, you know, went, uh, went, um, was flowing essentially. So we secured pre-seed investment from them. And from there it was, you know, it all just started. So we did, uh, we, we started with develop our vitamin supplement, started the business. And then, um, every couple of years we, we looked out for funding from other type of investors. So did you, because you had sort of the in and a bit of a relationship with Rocket um, Internet, did you go out to the market and have conversations with loads or did you, were you lucky enough you had a conversation with one, they were already looking at that industry in that market and it was kind of easy for you? It's a really good question actually and thinking, you know, taking a step back and thinking about it, um, maybe I should have spoken to more people, I don't know, but for me it was like, it's here. I, I didn't know too much about venture capital funding and, and the whole journey. And that's probably one, one of my major learnings is think about the next five years. Don't think about the next two months when you raise capital and when you're starting your business. But no regrets. Like I was super happy that I, that I started with them. But probably my, my piece of advice would be to definitely look at different options because you don't know what's available. You don't know what's possible. You'll get feedback from investors. Um, and so that could be interesting. It's really interesting as well. It's less common in Australia to raise capital than, than Europe and, and the States. It just, it just is for whatever reason, obviously there's not as much money flowing around our markets or when there are, they have their, you know, favorites that they like to invest with. So, but I do know there, there is still a lot of people in Australia that would love to understand the investment process a little bit more now. It's, it's really interesting. I wasn't sure what, where your answer would be, but it's like you want someone that had a lot of, you know, experience with it, but you just started and, and, and like you said, kind of the universe took care of a lot of that for you. But in terms of the pitch deck, whether it be, you know, the deck you're sending them or if you're on a Zoom call or in the office presenting to them, what sort of information when it's pre-seed before the business is, has been founded and you can point to, hey, this is our sales, this is our profit, what sort of information are investors looking for in a, in a pitch? Like what did you put in there to really excel the idea and get them to, 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 to write you a check to, to make it a reality? So I think first of all, it's important and I think we spoke about it just before, before uh, hitting record, but um, it's, you need to start somewhere and you need to put yourself out there. It would never be perfect. 
you'll suck when the first time you talk to, to an investor <laughs> yeah. and that's fine. But if you don't try, you'll never learn from it. So I probably did a lot of crappy meetings, you know, initially. And But what I did is that, so I didn't know anyone here, right? Or at least in the, in the space. And so what I did is that I started by... Um, asking some people that I knew who were connecting on LinkedIn with some investors, you know, do you know this person? Do you think you can introduce me? And a lot of times, you know, unfortunately on LinkedIn, people don't even know who they're connected to, but sometimes it's like, yeah, actually I need this person. I don't really know if they would be keen, but I'll try. And I have, and, and you'll find those, you know, two, three people who will connect you with such pleasure. Like, you know, just people who are so generous with the, their time or they contacted the network and that was, um, and I have a couple in mind who were, who were really helpful for me. So they connected me with investors. And so what I started before I started building a pitch deck is just meeting people for coffee. So you'd be surprised the amount of people who would be willing to spare 30 minutes of their time to talk to you, to meet a found potential, you know, good founder, I don't know. And you can talk about the business model with them. And I think what they want to hear is it's a huge market. It has to be. Um, and that the solution is solving a big, a real big problem, a real pain. I think pre-seed, because you still don't have a model, if you can nail these two things, and obviously they want to see the team, who is the founder pre-seed, they, they don't have anything tangible, right, to, to lean on. So they want to see that you're passionate, that you're excited about business model and, and excited about solving this particular problem. And I think if you can nail this, it's, it's probably uh, the best, best thing that you can do at that stage. And then as you progress, you start having metrics and data. And so it changes the game a little bit. So your conversations, like you said, every, every couple of years um, as the business grows and is ready for the next level of expansion, you will go back and have those conversations again. Is those pitches a couple of years live, very different to the original pitches that you're having? So like you said, so these are based more on real metrics, real growth numbers. Explain kind of the difference between the pitches for me if you can. Yeah. Uh, so precedes. How big can it be? Like, what's the market? Problem, How big can yeah, it be? Vision, yeah. problem. I think that's, uh, we understand that. Then you start having some traction. And uh, that's where you start he heading towards the, you know, the seed phase. And so typically at the seed, you have some early traction. You have some early adopters maybe who like your product, who come back often. And I'm talking about direct-to-consumer, of yeah, course. Yeah. Maybe different from other business, for other business models. And you need to leverage that data to be able to, pitch, you know, a picture. And actually, arguably, it's harder when there is uh, yeah, data yeah, than sure. when there is none. And so I think it's really important to um, understand your data. So understand who are your customers as much as possible. Are they coming back? Uh, what's your sales funnel looking like? Um, are there any challenges? And they will always be. Um, so I think people want to see, okay, well, that's a business model that people come to. The cost of acquisition is, you know, low, decent, and they can scale this business. And then when you move to Series A, you've definitely proven your product market fit. So you can acquire many customers at still, you know, a decent cost. And then they will want to challenge you, I think, on um, how can you scale your operations? What can break? Uh, because the last thing they would want is to invest in your business, to try to scale. And actually, it's impossible to scale and you completely, um, you, you plateau quite early in your, in your process. I wanted to ask another question and then I want to get into kind of the, the logistics of setting up a business like this. But um, it's part of the pre-seed conversation, obviously. It's like, who's the team who's delivering this? You, I know you have a co-founder with, with Vitable. What were your key strengths and what were their key strengths that you brought to the table to, to, to build this duo of founders? Were, you comp were they the same or were you opposite but complementary? How did you approach that? 
yeah, more opposite but complementary, I would say. Um, um, more so, I had my background, you know, in customer experience and product and so on. So I'm, I'm always very passionate about the customer. I want to understand the, the the psychology behind decision making, and I want to make sure that I can build an experience that is meaningful and that and that really works for them. Um, and I also do operations, so it's just. Just um, I don't know they they go together and um, one thing that I actually I, I had learned from my previous roles where um, a lot of people separate customer care and operations and they tend to always fight with each other because it's like well oper- uh, you know operations screw up um, customer care has to kind of pick, pick it up pick up the pieces so they always uh, and so what I say is that okay we'll put both in the same team and have the same manager and then two sub managers. And that works really well because That's then they a work really together. Great customer centric way to think about that because so many times, like you said, sorry to cut you off, like operations would be like, no, this is how it's done. It has to be like this way. But then the customer side's like, but it's not working. It's causing all these problems. But if they're together, you're thinking of solutions that work for both. So exactly. So they optimize and at least they don't blame each other. They work together. So that, that worked really well. But, and my co founder is more marketing and brand and, and growth, uh, like performance yeah. marketing oriented as well. In terms of, uh, I would say, personalities is like more, you know, in the detail, analytical, and I would say I'm more like the vision and maybe the, the I'm the one talking to investors and I'm maybe the salesy, the salesy <laughs> yeah. one. Now, um, this question is something that I, w- I was really keen to ask you, both because of the fact that you've raised some money, but also because of your consulting background now. A lot of people, when they, again, I'm from the e-com world, so a lot of people come, like, little startups, but, like, sometimes I see some entrepreneurs that aren't in a rush to, you know, launch a business as quick as they can because they've taken the ego away and they want to do something properly. They want to really look into a market or an opportunity where they know they can spend five to ten years of their life and, and, and do really well. In terms of researching, you know, opportunity, size of markets, trends, are there any, you know, websites or tools that you use to research as a starting point that people can look into certain opportunities or niches for? It's a very good question. Um, short answer is probably no, I mean, maybe there is, but that's not necessarily, that wasn't necessarily my approach. I think what I looked at back in the days, is you, you need to go as well to some extent with your gut feel. You can't just go with your gut feel because sometimes you uh, it might not be the right opportunity still, but... Um, you might be attracted by uh, to a category and understand that there is a problem because you've experienced it or you've seen people ar- around you experiencing it. And I think that's probably the most powerful one because you know also exactly how to address it. But um, typically I, I was subscribing to, you know, TechCrunch uh, or Crunchbase and looking at models that in the U.S. that are, were attracting a lot of capital and just trying to understand the industry and the problem because the U.S. is usually a little bit early versus Australia. And that was a good way to understand perhaps, because if you want to build a VC-backed venture, you need VCs to back you. I know it sounds super stupid, but that's the reality. And so if you're in Australia, you would want to attract Australian capital, especially if you're not planning on expanding to the U.S. And so you need to make sure that there is an understanding that your industry and your business model, if you can't bootstrap your, this, uh, will be attractive for investors. And I know it sounds almost counterintuitive. You, you don't start your business thinking like that, but at least you validate mm-hmm. that your industry or, and or the business model will be attractive for investors. Yeah, it's, re- it's like you said, it, it can seem really obvious, but until like you, you say it and understand it like that, a lot of people will won't think like that. But again, it's just like, 
with with these ideas, a lot of people in business feel like I need to, you know, think of the latest craziest invention. But sometimes you don't have to, you know, you know, think completely outside the box and invent something new. It's just about modeling what works. Looking at, like you said, if you know, if it's the US and they're they're ahead, and, and you've got an idea in Australia, and you can see some similar brands attracting, you know, investment from VCs, or they're growing pretty at a pretty good rate, but it hasn't really hit Australia or if you're in Europe, whatever country you're in then that's a really good way, you know, mod- modeling what works. And, and, and that way, like you said, your gut, your gut intuition, your gut feel can be good. But if there's some, you know, data to say, no, you're on the right track. And then when you do potentially have start having conversations with Australian investors, then you can say, hey, look, look at this happening over here. It's really good to be able to point to data to back up your decisions. Now, in terms of you're in the operations, that's kind of a, a lot of what you do. How do you make this product a reality? Because it's personalized packaging. It's, you know, you have 1.2 million different combinations of uh, vitamins that people can take, you know, like breaking it down to base ingredients. There's loads of different, like different supplements and ingredients. How do you logistically put all that together in a way, like you said, that doesn't break when it, when it hits scale? Very good question. It was it was uh, very challenging. I think the supply chain part of, of things were, was really hard because when we started, we had a very clear idea of what we wanted to do. So, you know, the quiz, as you mentioned, so we, we compiled a lot of scientific data. We worked with health, uh, health experts in order to build the quiz. Um, and then we plugged machine learning and, and AI to, to continuously optimize it. But then after that, once you get your recommendation, um, so let's say you have, you know, ashwagandha, which is an Ayurvedic herb, um, zinc and... Uh, magnesium in your pack, then we need to pack this into daily sachets for you and then ship 30 sachets every every month to your doorstep. So we had a clear idea of why we wanted to do that. And the reason is also that we wanted to help people just have a very easy routine that they could follow. A lot of people have like tens of bottles in their bathroom cabinet or, or chicken, no, chicken, kitchen bench. <laughs> and... Um, and they open the 10 bottle every morning and sometimes they forget and then it's, you know, just money thrown, thrown in the bin. Mm. So we wanted to really facilitate, make this super easy, hence the packs. But once we had our clear ID and we decided to execute it, we, we hit a lot of, uh, of walls. First of all, the regulation. So it was really hard to find um, the, right sol- the right solution to make it work. Uh, initially, it looked like it was impossible, which I hate to hear. Uh, when she tell me something is impossible, I'm like, there would be a way. And then it was, you know, manufacturing the products and then it was making sure that whatever we were creating that was going to be scalable. And to be honest, I I would say for the very, very early stage, it's okay if it's not scalable because you might just kind of stop where you are, not really innovate or progress in your ID because you're thinking, okay, well, this is not sustainable in the long run. But I think it's okay because if... If it's super manual to start with, then you'll find a, and and you're solving a real problem. Then you'll find a way to make it scalable further down the line. So when we started, it was not scalable. It was crazy. Um, so our customers receive a personalized booklet with the list of vitamins and and uh, everything that is in their pack. And so what we are doing is that I had a printer at home, and our operation was in Melbourne, and so I was in Sydney. And I was making, printing them one by one, uh, cutting them myself, wow. putting them in an express post envelope, shipping it to Melbourne so they could pack it in the packs because we couldn't find a way to get them printed there. And then, you know, you slowly adjust and you slowly optimize and then you get to a point where now we, we're, you know, 
uh, our operations are scalable and that's actually a relief yeah. because uh, too much manual work is um, is quite stressful. Exactly. Now, with how it sits today is because obviously like for those who haven't seen, like then like your your name is on your park every day and obviously it's very custom. Is that printed in the same facility as where your manufacturer houses like all the supplements themselves? Is it kind of housed under one roof and now it all happens and yeah. So we manufacture all the vitamins and supplements in, in Australia, but with different manufacturers. Yep. Um, and then we store our vitamins on in the facility that does the, all the packing. And then each order is made or is custom made for the person who orders it. So let's say you, you place your order. Yes, you have your little pack. So 30 packs with your name on it and your all the vitamins. You get your booklet with your name on it as well. And then that's shipped to your house. So each single pack is made or someone and so we aim at packing that quite you know quite quickly in the 24 to 48 hours and that's done yeah in a, in a, in a separate facility and did you like i can't think of any businesses out there that are like okay there's 30 individual packets with different things and it's going to be different for every single person did a facility that could already you know facilitate that for you without any changes exist or was part of the challenge in setting up finding someone that could you know, handle that level of personalization right at that level of the supply chain? No, that was really hard. So they were, um, you know, machines and there was some, uh, there were some solutions out there, but they didn't quite fit what we were looking for. And so that, that have been um, a big journey to, f to, first of all, you know, find the right facility, convince people, I'm, you know, I'm a foreigner. I have a French accent. I approach people and I'm like, okay, I'm building this business. I, I do, you know, no one knows about you and you're trying to convince those uh, uh, guys to, um, to trust you and to, and to start working with you. So that was, that was uh, quite challenging, but that's part of, you know, I like, I kind of like that. And, uh, and then you need to, as you evolve, continue to find newer solutions and obviously it gets easier because then, you know, you have articles in the newspaper about you, in the AFR about you. So people start researching you and they're like, okay, well, that's legit. So um, I can trust that there is something there. That's, I want to ask you a question now. People, a lot of people that might, that want to be in business will think I'm not in sales, but realistically everyone's in sales, whether you, whether you think it or not now, whether it be pitching to investors or convincing, you know, a facility to change the way they work things to facilitate you or working with a manufacturer and getting them to agree to lowering the MOQs. These are all things that we need to be able to, you know, convince and persuade people. It sounds like from your experience, you've had quite a bit of success with doing that. And maybe it's just this natural thing, but have you been able to break down or is there a piece of advice that you could share to people when in terms of like selling someone on an idea to back you or to, you know, work with you or to just make that partnership work? Good question. I, I never really thought about it. I think what I always do is that I always think, first of all, I always approach people, you know, with kindness. I know it sounds super, you know, um, basic, but I just want to make sure that whatever relationship I build, I, I build it well. And then you can enter this partnership and really have a long-term relationship because you will have difficulties, whoever you work with, there will be hard times, there will be good times, and you always need to to, to remain, I think, uh, uh, kind in, in whatever whatever happens. And so, so I always try to focus on the the person and the and the building a nice relationship, and uh, and I'm always interested in the person in front of me. But I think the best way to approach probably those negotiation negotiation is always to think what's in the what's in there for them. 
Um, sometimes the person you are talking to is a business owner, so it's a little bit easier. They want you know their business to do well, so they will want a new customer. But sometimes you talk to an employee of that business, and you're no one, and maybe they're an account manager, and they're like, oh my God, she's going to be so such hard work. <laughs> I may as well try to find someone who is already established. And and so you you think, okay, what's what do they have to prove? What's in it for them, and how can I help them achieve that? is a good way, I think, to always manage the relationship well. So um, you, they are going to talk, to pitch your business to their boss. So what tools can you give them? What information can you give them so that job is super easy for them and they want to support you? So I always think about it this way to try to make it also easier for myself. Otherwise, you can you know, bang your head against the wall because you're like, oh, why are they saying no? Because you never really ask yourself the question, well, why would they say yes? Yeah, that's great advice. Just putting yourself in their shoes and thinking if you were, if you were them in that role, what would make you, you know, be more willing to to, to work with someone or want to do that? Um, yeah. So I think that's that's really great advice. Now in terms of... And then you can, sorry to interrupt, but yeah, you can yeah. also ask them. If you see mm. that it's not working, you say, look, I want this to work. What can I do? What do you need to help me with this? Yeah. And actually, 99% of the time, people will be super honest and tell you. Yeah. Mm. That's, that's really great. I, I I think that's really good advice. I had Raquel on as well um, a couple episodes ago. Oh, by the time this goes live, it'll be a few episodes ago. But like she was having some really great um, conversations with retailers. They're, they're a perfume brand that are growing really rapidly. And they would just wouldn't quite get the yes, but they weren't like, oh, they didn't know exactly why. And they're just like, look, you're a great product. We love the samples, but you're just not in demand enough in the UK. So he's like, okay, I'm going to make us in demand in the UK. And I'm sure very soon um, they'll be they'll be knocking that door down as well. So you just got to ask the question essentially and put yourself in their shoes. Now, in terms of when it comes to scaling the business, you've you've done really well now from the some of the latest reports I've read over a million dollars a month you guys are turning over now. How do you actually, in terms of like growing the business and, and increasing your customer base, how have you went from this idea, you've set everything up and now it's time to acquire customers? What does that journey look like? It's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a huge, uh, huge piece of work, obviously. But I think going back to understanding the, your, you know, your customer, who, what problem you're solving for who, and then where to find these people, what do they struggle with, what's the best message to explain what your solution is going to give them um, is kind of, you know, the steps that we took. And so we, we were, we invested um, uh, a lot in the, in building our brand as well, because what we thought straight away was, well, we are a vitamin and supplement brand um, and we are based in Australia, which is really important for Australians. Uh, and I guess to, for, to have this kind of um, trust stamp and so what it will be important for people when we just start? Well, trust and credibility, I think, would be a really, really important factor. And I think that building that into the brand look and feel was really important for us. And that's what we, we really try to do. And then, of course, uh, all, the, all your RUSPs, so, you know, the personalization, the convenience, the simplicity, and try to... Not just you know sell it as a as a marketing message, but really make the whole experience true to that. So your marketing needs to be simple. As an example, if you have you know a, a, a visual and it's like full of text, and you you're saying you're telling people I'm going to make your life easier, it's not really uh, it doesn't make sense, right? And so the whole uh, experience from start to finish, we wanted it to be very uh, very simple and convenient. And then one thing that I love doing is just talking to customers. 
you know, sometimes it can be daunting. Sometimes you don't want to put yourself out there because you're like, oh, I'm going to be judged as a founder, as a business owner. But feedback is gold. And um, especially from people who didn't like your model and people who did like your model. And you need to get, because perhaps a lot of people will say, well, these people have left, so they're not for us. No, no, talk to them, understand what went wrong. And some people are not, actually shouldn't maybe have purchase from you but others they just didn't have the experience that they were expecting expecting to have and so that helps you grow and and improve yeah the the negative you know reviews and feedback is gold for a business particularly like particularly like a, a, a business like you guys where it's like it's about how sticky your product is how long can we keep people as part of our ecosystem do you remember any advice like because like you said it's this goes back to the discomfort thing you know like putting yourself out there calling people that have stopped becoming a customer or potentially left a bad review and didn't have the experience they wanted do you is there anything off the top of your head and i'm putting you on the spot like a piece of feedback that you got from a customer that didn't have the best experience that obviously you don't like ever hearing that about your business as a founder but then you look actually that's a really fair point and then you've been able to go to the team and fix a product process procedure anything like that Hmm, very good question. Mm. Well, I'll just start by saying, yeah, it's 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 tempting sometimes to just be like, oh, this person is wrong. But <laughs> it's such a wrong, and sometimes you'll have the occasional. Of course, you're not for every. You're not going to make everyone exactly. Happy, right? yeah. But I think being open and trying to put your ego aside and just being like, well, what what would be an experience that would have been good for this customer. Is, is so important. And I'm not going to lie, if I'm, you know, in a good, in a, in a bad mood, I'm a bit tired, sometimes I'm like, oh, this person. But it's such the, it's really the wrong approach. And, uh, you know, and then I think about it for two seconds, and I'm like, no, look, they've purchased our product. They want, they expected something from this and they didn't get it. And now it, that's our job to, to make this, the experience better. So to answer your question, give me a sec, probably. Should have gave um, you some warning on that one. Uh, very, like... <laughs> Well, we, we do, yeah, we do get feedback. I think often it's it's around perhaps the the delivery experience. You know, we, we are selling convenience and simplicity and we, there have been times where we were smashed with orders and especially throughout COVID, it has been uh, on and off, you know, in terms of shipping. And and I think we were, what what I discovered is that we had a lot of, of people throughout some periods that were a bit frustrated that they were not getting the vitamins, you know, quick enough. And I just didn't know how to make, you know, how to make it better. I just, I was like, well, we can't improve this because we're stuck with COVID and, and you know, everything was falling apart at that time. But um, we still want to offer this solution to our customers. And so what we did is that we picked up the phone, tried to understand, you know, you, you, you seem you know, frustrated. What were you expecting? What didn't we deliver? And when, what we understood, and for me that was mind-blowing, is that they just wanted more communication, more transparency. They were like, that's fine. We are in we are in Australia. We understand Ospost is not you know, delivering the products quickly, but I need you to tell me that it's going to be late. I just need that. And for me it was mind-blowing because they, they were happy if they just understood what to expect. And, you know, expectation versus reality. Yes. That's all what uh, uh, that our customers wanted. And now we're taking this approach all the time. If we have a delay, if something's not quite right, we'll always send an email to, to our customers explaining what's happening. Yeah, I can write. We had the same experience over that period with, like, delays. And some people were just, like, angry and, you know, you couldn't reason them. But, you know, the far majority, like, 
90, close to, I'd say 98% of people, when you just explain to them, hey, this is the situation we're in, this is, this is where we're at, they appreciate that and that's good enough. Exactly. Right? And you're always going to learn more from your negative reviews than your positive reviews. Exactly. Now, it's fun to read them and feel good. I'm like, yeah, we know we're, you know, we've got an awesome product and we're doing everything, you know, is, is the best. But if you re- rest on those lowers and, and, and you just think that's, that's enough, then you're missing opportunity. And eventually a competitor will come in and they'll start fixing all the problems that your negative reviews are speaking about. And then you're going to really be in, in a, in a sticky situation. Now, obviously the COVID period was crazy for everyone in business, but apart from that, because I think people are overhearing about, you know, that period in business. um, (laughs) What's, what's one of the biggest challenges that, that you've had to overcome, do you think over this, across this journey? COVID, like, and and now post COVID. Mm, I think the ever changing landscape the uncertainty, the, you know, people, investors telling us it's the end of the world. No, actually, it's okay. <laughs> um, and, you know, the crystal ball, no one actually really knows. Um, and some people pretend that they know, but, you know, not, not many people exactly know. And what was going to happen or what was going to happen at the time. And I think it was the, yeah, the, the changes every, every couple of months, really, because when COVID hit March 2020, Everyone was saying that's that's it, that that's over. All businesses will die. There won't be no um, funding available for anyone, and you're just on your own. And co- going from trusting that you know it'll be capitalized and everything is going well to now actually everything has changed, and then you know it changed again, and then it changed again several times throughout the yeah. period, and now we're in a economic downturn, and it's 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 uh, harder you, to secure capital. Do you still get yeah like because you've been you've been a company that has been backed by investment, are they constantly, like, are you constantly needing to have your finger on the pulse of, like, the wider economic situation in the world? Is that something that keeps you up at night ever, hearing, you know, recession or all these different, you know? No, not really because I, I've I've worked a, a lot uh, throughout the years to not worry about the future, like worry about something that I can't really control. Mm-hmm. You can only control, you know, what you do and the rest is... Uh, a surprise, a daily surprise, and that's quite relaxing actually when you when you can do that. So no, I, I look a bit. Of course, I'm not oblivious of what's happening. So I look at the signs. You know, in, is it actually impacting our customer base? Are people spending less? Is, it, is all this true? But I decide that I'll make adjustments once I see that actually something materializes, not just uh, anticipating that something can materialize. So that's maybe one, and then so it doesn't really keep me up at night. I don't know if it should, but <laughs> but um, I think yeah. The, what I find stressful is, is, as I said, you know, things that change all the time, and then you need to, as a founder, you need to always reassure everyone around you, right? But no one really reassures you, <laughs> and it's the it's the whingy minute. But it's true. You have employees, you have stakeholders, you have suppliers, you have uh, investors, and everyone will look at you and be like, how is she feeling, you know? Um, and so it's it's really hard because you need to keep always everyone's energy up and, and help people feel confident that you're doing the right thing and you, and you know what you're doing. And sometimes you don't know, but you know that you have a direction, a vision, and that you're just going to continue to grind and try to get there as much as possible. Mm. That's yeah. That's funny. That's that's a lot of people don't realize like how lonely it can be to 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 be leading a business, and it isn't for everyone. I say that to people, but like you, sometimes you don't know until you find out until you got to put yourself in those situations until you realize 
is business for me long-term? Yes, no, and if it is, maybe I don't want to be the CEO of a company. Maybe I just want to be the visionary and bring in, hopefully you've been able to scale your business to a certain point where maybe you can bring in like a GM or a CEO potentially one day. Definitely something that would be great to have as the leader of a business. Because like you said, like making sure everyone else has everything they need and morale is lifted and everyone else is excited can almost be a full-time job. And then it's like, okay, everyone goes home. Then you've still got your work to do as well. So like having a HR team, again, would be a game changer in, in that perspective. Now, as you've grown and scaled the business, as I said, like really, really impressive run rate, over a million dollars a month. What are some of the biggest lessons you've learned as you've built out your team? So how many employees are, are you guys at now? I think it was around 20 or something I, I read in an article. Or, or around like 14, 15 yeah. Yeah, employees. So what's, what's some of the biggest challenges that you've experienced in that space? Because it's something that can be extremely difficult to get right. Sometimes it's you know a little bit down to luck, timing, right person walks through the door. But you, you're smiling now. I, <laughs> I imagine it hasn't been super straightforward and easy because it, it never is for people. No, it's not. In, and I always uh, joke uh, about it. I'm like, you know, people, any type of, uh, again, I'm, I mentioned stakeholders, you know, suppliers, investors, employees, they, they can, it can be the best part of your day and it can be the absolute worst part of your day. And, uh, and it's just the reality of dealing with people, I think. And it's, uh, it's, it can be quite uh, daunting, I, I feel. And there is a learning curve for me, at least there was a learning curve, a massive learning curve to make sure that, First of all, you know, we, I think the, the thing at the very beginning is that I was like, I'm building a business and I had this imposter syndrome a little bit. And I was like, well, who can I, Lara, uh, you know, first time founder attract in my business? And I was not aiming high uh, when necessarily with how I was thinking about the roles that our people who I wanted to onboard. And I think it's, it's such a mistake because when you're passionate about what you do, you should try to get the absolute best people that you want in your business. And uh, I, so not to say my first employees were matching that, but I think my approach was wrong. So it took me a lot of time to find uh, my my first initial um, employees and they were amazing and uh, initially when you onboard people at the very early stage you, stage I really recommend getting um, you know Swiss Army knife we say in French uh, so people who have a lot of multiple skills are problem solvers are doers and they just don't mind getting their hands dirty and it's okay if they're not technical or haven't necessarily done it in the past as long as they're scrappy and can get shit done. And then as you evolve, you need to find different profiles because that's not scalable. <laughs> then that's a mess. That's a problem. If you have only these people in a team and you're doubling your team, it's only scrappy. And you're <laughs> like, oh, my God, this is really overwhelming. So then you need to find another type of profile and so on. But I think the major lesson, and it's not my lesson, it's you know uh, probably someone very wise, um, hire slow and fire fast mm -hmm. is probably the best best, best learning and probably one I'm still trying to uh, to uh, use and implement is make sure that you're ticking all your boxes, that you hire for your, always for your non-negotiable. I feel that sometimes you, you when you're in the recruitment process, you know kind of the type of person you want and sometimes unconsciously they tick two out of five boxes and you're like, that will do. Um, and also, you know, they're super nice and, and so that works, but actually you're like, ah, these three things were very important. So make sure you, you have non-negotiable and you hire for that. And then obviously if it doesn't work out, just, you know, if I always say if you think too often about, maybe that's controversial, but if you think too often about should I let go, this let this person go, 
means you it means you do you need to you will you have never thought this about a good employee never and don't wake up in the morning like this is really good employee should I let them go no if you're thinking about this again and again it's you need to just pull the plug and it will make this person better it will be better for them as well because they it will show uh, and yeah. they won't be happy anyways. So it's better for both parties, I think. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And, and you mentioned an in- interesting point in reflecting on, a, on our journey. I've definitely experienced that. And there's a moment where it changes where like zero to 10 at least, it's like you said, they're the all-rounders. They don't need a clear, you know, game plan and SOP for everything they do. They don't mind doing a little bit of this and then helping out with that. That's awesome. And that's like, that's what I'm like. I like, you know, being a bit more of a journalist and doing a lot of things and having a lot of fun. But like as a business starts to grow and you start hiring more specific roles and like particularly once you start hiring people from like larger corporate organizations, if you don't realize consciously there's a shift that needs to be made, they're not going to be happy. They're not going to work out. They're not going to fit into that um, structure. And that's like, yeah, when do you start to, you know, put more focus on processes and procedures and slight like corporatization of like a little startup and it, you know, it, it isn't easy and it's not always, you know, the fun thing to do. But if you really are like committed to the vision of the business and growing it, it's something you need to go through because like you said, if you just try and get, you know, a team of 30, you know, Swiss army knives, then not really much is going to get done in the long term. And no. it's just a part of a part of business. Now, I want to ask you one last series of like questions around international expans- expansion before we wrap up now. What's the process for you guys? Obviously your, you know, supplements and vitamins, you need to be listed on the ARTG, you know, registered with the TGA. Now, is that something before you move into uh, international market across Asia, across Europe, whatever that may be, what's the process that you guys, like, do you, do you have boxes you need to tick with local, like, governing bodies before you move in or can you just start selling? So it's basically what we do is that we we, we sell everything from our Australian uh, website and we ship you know, e-commerce parcels. Yep. So from that perspective, we because our, our product are listed with the TGA yep. and they comply with very stringent processes, it is, you know, um, accepted to, to ship in, in other countries, at least the countries that we ship in. Not, yep. it, it's not true for every single country. And, uh, and that's the approach that we're taking. Now um, we will in future as we continue our geographic expansion. So at the moment, um, Australia is 75% of our revenue, 25% goes to international including New Zealand and Singapore. And we will have uh, to look at listing locally our products or, or for some of the countries in order to um, be able to, add, you know, to be present physically. Actually have a facility. Exactly. Yeah. Actually have a facility and be able to be closer to the customer as well, which I think is really important. Well, the, the good thing about starting from Australia as someone that does have experience with regulatory bodies, we're very strict. So it makes yes. like if you've been able to get listed and approved in Australia, there's a good chance that you'll be able to tick enough boxes international markets because Australia in terms of, you know, our regulations are very tight, particularly anything like health related that goes into our body or affects our bodies. So I, that's one, one thing I wanted to ask. Now, in terms of you move to a new market, people approach this in all different ways. You know, successful businesses will become famous in one market and they'll expand. What do you guys do when you start selling in, in another market? Do you – is it Facebook ads that you turn on first? Do you start working with some local influencers or content creators? What's your approach in terms of, hey, let's go explore this market. Let's see if we can get some penetration and see if we can run there profitably. What's your process when you, when you move into a new market? 
Good question. So we always take a, an approach where we okay, we'll test if the market is is suitable essentially for our business model. So what that means is that we'll invest, you know, small amount of money, like I don't know, two two grand, you know, on on a Facebook ad, and in that in that market, and see after we've done all the regulatory checks and so on. And then we'll see if actually people buy our product, if we can just ship it seamlessly, if it arrives, if people, if people reorder. And then we'll probably do that for a couple of months. And once we validate a couple of, uh, of uh, metrics, I would say, then we like ramp it up. So initially we, do, we, we go in with um, social, social media ads. That's really the approach. And then once we want to scale a little bit, we partner with local influencers and uh, micro, macro influencers as well. But we haven't done in international countries anything like right. above the line, above the line, yeah. or exactly. Yeah. Now that makes a lot of sense. Now, what? Tell me before we wrap up. What's next for? What's next for the brand again? With your focus on tech and, and personalization, there's so many different directions you could take the brand. But what? What do you think? Like the next say, year to two years looks like for you guys. So. Really, our you know our mission is to uh, is to make feeling good an everyday thing. So that's the you know it sounds mundane, but that's really what we're we're trying to achieve. And uh, to do that, we we leverage technology to simplify consumer health. So we really really focus on this. So anything that we can um, do to continue to provide our customers or, or new customers with simple solutions to address the health goals, then that's where we're heading. So to give you an example, at the moment we have our quiz to assess what uh, customers or, or users need based on their unique profile. And then we offer um, vitamins and, and supplements and then delivery and subscription. And we've, we've developed an app a couple of years ago that is kind of uh, complements, I would say, your experience where we help you uh, build healthy habits, track your progress, remi remind you to take your vitamins. We've gamified the experience. And so we'll continue to ramp up the digital experience because there is a big opportunity we've seen by talking to our customers and engaging with our community that they need more support with you know diet and lifestyle to complement their their vitamin packs, but also they need better understanding of um, why the why behind it. So you can tell people this is what you need to do, but or you can give them a data point like um, you know I don't know if you have a, a, a smartwatch, but essentially it tells you here here was your sleep. You slept seven hours. Yep. Uh, you had X amount of REM, X amount of uh, deep sleep, and so what? Like, what do I do with this? So what, what we want to do is help people make sense of all that data, all that, all that information, so they can get a personalized recommendation on what to do. Yeah. Uh, exciting times, exciting space. I think if if you haven't already started your health journey, like really invest in it, it's, it's something that... I'm only putting more and more emphasis on every year I get older because I think you, you, you probably need to as well. It's not as easy to roll out of bed when you were, you know, 17, 18. You can do as much exercise or workouts the day before and wake up and not feel anything. But it's just part of um, part of the aging process. And, like, if you want to take on more responsibility, more stress, you know, and, and achieve more things during the day when you're working, whatever work is for you, you need to be able to have the energy to be able to, to back that up. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of what you're doing. I'm excited to watch you guys um, continue to grow and go from strength to strength. So, Lara, thank you so much for coming and best of luck for the rest of the year and, and onwards. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And um, just for anyone that does want to find more information on you guys or, or look into taking this quiz, where's the best place they can find either yourself or, or Vitable? Yeah, so vitable.com.au, uh, that's our website. And then you can take a free 
five-minute quiz to uh, to get a personalized recommendation based on your unique profile, and then that's the start of the experience. <laughs> awesome. All right, we'll leave it at that. We'll put all the links in the show notes. There we go. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or you got something out of it, do yourself a favor, do me a favor, do your friends a favor and share this with them and they can come along on this journey with us. Thanks again and I'll see you next time.